morning. Uh, last week, I gave you some homework. Hopefully, you've completed that homework. I said that uh, whatever it is you put at the center of your life is God. And if that isn't the true God, it's a false God. But if it's at the center of your life, it's God. It's a God. And you worship it. You spend your time on it, your resources on it. It may be something like your favorite sports team, your reputation, your kids, your spouse, your boyfriend, your girlfriend, your nice stuff, your job, something like that. So I hope you took that seriously last week and uh, looked at the things that were at the center of your life. Is there anyone who intentionally sat down and did that this week? Looked at those things. A few of you. Anybody want to come up and share? No, I didn't think so. Okay. (laughs) We did do that at our house. We talked about all these things that we had at the center of our lives. We found some things that were really unhealthy, some false gods that we needed to intentionally move out of the center. And uh, I asked my wife, Angie, I said, um, so do you have any false gods? And she said, uh, yes, you. I thought that was just the sweetest thing anybody had ever said to me. I mean, yeah, you, you know, she should have God at the center of her life and not me, but if you're married, there is no one you should love and respect more apart from God than your spouse. And I was just feeling like we had this really cool connection that was happening, one of those cool relationship building moments that you sometimes share with your spouse. And I told her, I said, you know, that was one of the nicest things you've ever said to me. And she looked at me kind of confused and said, what are you talking about? And I said, you know that you have me at the center of your life. And she said, I said a few, a few things, not you. (laughs) So uh, that's a true story. So I got back to reality. I got the classic laugh and eye roll that I get most days over something that I've said. But I hope you did have the chance to think about this week some uh, changes that you might make to get closer to living the way God created you to live. I know that some of you did that because of the results of the challenge we had last week. I don't know if you've heard, but last week we, uh, we talked about having God at the center of our lives. One way, to, one way to do that would be to help us meet this challenge we have of needing 20 additional adults in children's ministry. We were at the point where we are going to have to start closing down classrooms because of the new growth that we had. We didn't have adults to cover all of those needs. And last week we had 23 adults come and get trained to help. Yeah, that was great. So even this morning, I'm sure we've got uh, some of them back there working, but thanks to those of you who stepped up. So today we're going to be looking at commandment number three, and I'm going to be using the English Standard Translation to talk about uh, this commandment today. And I mention that because you see this commandment stated a couple different ways, depending on what translation you use. The version I normally use says, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. But most of us learned it as, you shall not take the name of the Lord God in vain. Now that may not seem like a big difference to you. The first one is more uh, more current. Uh, It's it's simpler to take take the name in vain and take those and turn it into misuse like 
the NIV did. Maybe a little easier to understand. But I think it also leads us to this tendency that we have sometimes to minimize the far-reaching impact of this commandment. You see, when I was growing up, using the name of God or Jesus in anger would get me in big trouble. If I said that word at my grandparents' house, I would have to go cut my own switch and bring it back for a whipping, as they used to say in Bracken County. And even at my house today, my wife and I both have had this same value instilled in us from a, from a young age. So we both know that if, if we hear one of our kids saying the name God or Jesus, they better be praying. And we don't even like when they use OMG in texts. And at first glance, this is all we have to do to keep this commandment. Many of us say, you know, commandment number one, have no other gods before me. Well, I don't worship any other gods, so check. I've got, I've got that one. Commandment number two, don't have any idols. I don't have any idols at my house. Check. I've got that one. Commandment number three, don't use God's name as a cuss word. Check. That one's pretty easy. If you're like me, you probably thought you did okay at following this command, unless you stubbed your toe or hit your thumb with a hammer. And as a kid, I remember thinking that it really wasn't that hard to keep this command. I mean, there were lots of words to choose from. And as long as I avoided using God or Jesus in an inappropriate way, I would be okay. And trust me, as a kid, I used most of those other words. But I got thinking about the concept that we've been teaching already and that we're going to continue to talk about through the Ten Commandments. Um, And I've already said over and over again, that the Ten Commandments point us right to Jesus. So we're going to dig in deeper to that this week. So if you have your Bibles, turn over to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we're going to start with verse 17. Matthew five seventeen. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus didn't come to take the Ten Commandments away, but he helps us understand the true and full meaning of the commandments. Verse 20 says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So during the time of Jesus, there were these teachers, and they carefully followed the letter of the law. In fact, they were proud of the degree to which they were able to follow it. They were, they were called Pharisees, and they were very legalistic. They were constantly trying to trick Jesus with some question about the law. And it seemed that the most important thing to them was that they seemed holy. Their appearance was everything. It was, it was of someone who never made a mistake. But they missed the spirit of the law, and that's what Jesus was teaching about. <clears throat> At one point, Jesus says to these teachers, if you can imagine this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you clean the outside of a cup and a plate, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and plate, that the outside may be clean also. Then he said, You are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So outwardly you appear righteous to others, but within you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Harsh. 
And maybe you know someone that fits that description even today. In fact, maybe you've been away from church for a while because your perception is that churches are full of hypocrites. And there are many people in the church in America today that do more harm to the kingdom than they do good exactly for this reason. They present themselves as holy and righteous. Appearances are everything, but inside they're full of living for themselves and they're quick to point out the deficiencies of others. So as Jesus is talking to these teachers, he says, you think you understand what God was doing when he, when he gave us the law, but you are clueless of what God was doing. Matthew 5.21 says, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is liable to judgment. Everyone who insults his brother will be liable to counsel. And, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Matthew 5, 27, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in your heart. See what Jesus is doing here? He's saying, it's not enough to follow the letter of the law. Just because you've never actually murdered someone doesn't mean you're okay. Just because you've never committed the act of adultery doesn't mean you're okay. God wants our heart. And the Ten Commandments tells us about that nature of who God is. Now I'm close to getting ahead of myself here and, and starting down a path of, of giving you a message for a later week. But I think it's important that we get this because most of us here have never murdered anyone. Most of us probably haven't committed adultery and many of us never say the name God or Jesus in an inappropriate way. But Jesus is saying that's missing the point. The point is God wants your heart. We were created to live with God at the center of our lives. So let's get back to commandment number three. You shall not take the name of the Lord God in vain. If we want to dig deeper into this command, we have to understand uh, what some of these words mean and, and look at those more closely. So uh, we want to understand what the spirit of what God is trying to do here. So we take the word take, and I looked that word up in the Hebrew, and I couldn't pronounce it or even read it, but I looked up other places where that same word was used, and I found that that word means to lift, like in worship, to lift, to carry, or to bear. You shall not take the name of the Lord in vain. So how do we take a name? I thought about this in today's culture. So I asked my wife, what did it mean? What did it mean to you that you took my name when we got married? When people married, when people get married culturally in the United States, the bride most often takes the name of her husband. And this isn't something that's required by law. It's not something that's mentioned in Scripture that we should do. But it does show that there's this new unity between a man and a woman when they get married. For those of you who know my wife, if you heard her called by her maiden name, you probably wouldn't know who that was. Who that was. Because you know her by her new name. Perkins. She took my name. She bears it. The same thing happens when we become a follower of Jesus. 1 Peter 4 says, however, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you 
bear that name. Praise God that you have taken the name of Jesus. If you have committed to following Jesus, if you've been united with him in baptism, you bear his name. In fact, Scripture uses the metaphor of marriage to help us understand this idea. The church is called the bride of Christ. We've been unified with Jesus. There's solidarity between us and Jesus, so much so that people should recognize it if we're a follower of Jesus. They should think we look different now. In fact, some people believe that the reason marriage is so important and so sacred, and men, I want you to hear this especially, is because God uses it as a metaphor in His Word. So men, if we are loving our wives the way that God intended, the way God created us to, our marriage becomes a picture to the world of what Jesus' love is like. Men, when we wreck our marriages, and we'll talk more about that in the next few weeks, we give the world an inaccurate picture of what the love of Jesus is like. Because when we are the bride of Christ, when we take the name of Jesus, when we bear that name, we know that Jesus will never be unfaithful. We know that Jesus will never leave us. We know that he uh, never puts his own interest above ours. We know that he's willing to lay down his life for us because that's what he did. So I hope you can see that taking the name of the Lord is so much more than just a word that comes out of our mouths when we're angry. When we take the name of the Lord, when we bear it, we become known by it. It changes our identity and it changes our purpose. Angie no longer goes by her maiden name. Her primary focus isn't being part of the Preble family. Her focus is now leading the Perkins family alongside me. My responsibility is to love her the way Jesus loved. To stay with her the way Jesus stays with us. To put her interest above my interest, the way that Jesus became a sacrifice. And just like she took my name and her new identity as part of this new family that we started back in 1995, we also take the name of Jesus. We bear it. We have a new identity. The second word we need to focus on in this commandment is uh, vain. Vain means to lack worth or substance. So if this was just about the words we speak, saying the word God in anger um, changes the real meaning of that word God. It changes it from something, something that's valuable, to a word that's just a meaningless expression of anger. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus teaches his followers how to pray. And he says this, when you, when you pray, pray this way. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Some of you have repeated that Lord's Prayer before. Hallowed means holy, perfect, or valuable. So instead of making God's name something worthless, we should be recognizing that it's something that's valuable. And that's how we should be thinking about God when we speak His name. But we already know that this command isn't just about speaking. It's about taking the name of the Lord. How do you take the name of the Lord in a worthless way? Let's go back to what we've learned so far in this Ten Commandments series. First, God created us in His image. Remember, we talked a lot about image. Adam and Eve messed that up, and they passed on a marred image to, to their descendants, us. So God, he had already adopted us, he already loved us, he already set us free, 
And he gave us the Ten Commandments so we could see what his image looked like again. We could see his nature and know how to live the way we were created. But we messed that up. So the Ten Commandments point us straight to Jesus, who kept them perfectly. And we worship him. We keep him at the center of our lives. And the way we spend our time and our resources on him primarily helps us to become more like him. That's worship. Romans chapter 8, we read this last week. For those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. God is bringing us all the way back to the image of Jesus. So what God's talking about here in commandment number 3, what it means to not take the name of the Lord in vain is to claim to be a follower of Jesus, but not be conforming to his image. If we say we're a follower of Jesus, if we bear his name, and nothing about us is any different, his name becomes worthless, and it has no value. That's living outside of the way God created us to live. We call that sin. Sin leads to suffering. If I came in this morning and told you, you know, I live right across 27 here. And this morning I decided to walk to church. And as I'm crossing 27, you may have noticed that uh, on 27, the garbage trucks just fly up and down 27. And I didn't give myself enough time. I stepped out in front of one of the garbage trucks, didn't have time to get out of the way. He never hit his brakes and hit me. I went flying up into the yard, and uh, I stood up, I dusted myself off, and I walked on over here to church. It was crazy. You wouldn't believe that. You wouldn't believe it because if I'd been hit by a truck, I would look different than I look now. And the same thing happens with people who follow Jesus. They say Jesus is their Lord. They say they have him at the center of their life. They may come to church every week. They may have a Bible verse on their Facebook profile. They may have a bumper sticker on their car that says, follow me to Plum Creek on Sunday. But their life really hasn't changed at all. This Easter, we kicked off a challenge that we've been praying about here at Plum Creek for a long time. We call it the invite culture. We challenged everyone at Plum Creek to have an intentional conversation with people in their lives about Jesus. The easiest way to do that was to invite them to come to church on Easter. Our goal was to have a thousand people here for Easter. And many of you are here today because someone invited you uh, through that challenge. God's people at Plum Creek responded. We had 1,009 people here on Easter. That's more people than we've ever had at Plum Creek on a single day. But that wasn't just some campaign to get people through the door so we could say, well, we had 1,000 people. We were kicking off a focus. We called it culture. You're going to hear more about it in the future because we believe that every person at Plum Creek should be praying for, should be inviting to church, should be meeting at the door, should be taking to the cafe some of their friends who don't know Jesus. We're making a bold statement that we're going to be intentional about everyone at Plum Creek being serious about that responsibility. We take that stand because we, because we call ourselves followers of Jesus. We bear that name. And when we look at Scripture, the reason Jesus came to earth becomes clear. Let me share some of those Scriptures with you. God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. John chapter 3. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Luke 19. Luke chapter 5 says, I have not come to call the righteous, but to sinners to repentance. 
Matthew 20 says, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. And 1 Timothy 1 says, This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came to the world to save sinners. Jesus came to earth to reach and save lost people. So if we're followers of Jesus, if we bear the name of Jesus, we also will be reaching lost people for him. If we are not reaching lost people, if we're not intentional about inviting lost people to church, helping them get connected, we are taking the name of Jesus in vain, literally. We, it doesn't make any difference to our lives. And I love how some churches state this in their values. They say, found people, find people. And that's just reality. You can't claim to be a follower of Jesus and not be concerned about reaching lost people. Getting to a thousand at Plum Creek wasn't just some campaign. It was culture. And if I asked you right now, who are the lost people you're praying for? Would you have a list? If I asked you right now, is there someone you've invited to church since Easter? Would you be able to come up with a name? Not doing that is taking the name of Jesus in vain. You bear the name of Jesus. You say you're a follower of Jesus. But you aren't doing the things that Jesus did. And you're not doing the thing Jesus told us to do in Matthew 28. You bear his name, but it hasn't changed you. And that's just one way that we see people taking the name of the Lord in vain. There are other ways too, lots of ways we could talk about. But one is the issue of hypocrisy. We already talked about that a little bit. There are people who bear the name of Jesus, but they still live in their own little judgmental world. There are a lot of people who don't want anything to do with church. Some people in my family don't want anything to do with church because they've encountered people who are hypocrites. This kind of person is uh, the one who puts out the appearance of being holy and righteous and perfect. They love when the message is about uh, quote-unquote big sin that they would never commit because it makes them feel even more righteous. They're quick to point out how terrible it is that those people are committing those sins. They're quick to talk about someone's addiction to drugs and how they or their children would never try drugs. But they're addicted to their own comfort. They're addicted to their own pride. They're addicted to their own image in the community. They're quick to point out how some people struggle with sexual identity issues. But they wake up every morning and they put on a mask so no one sees their real identity. And this has done incredible damage to the kingdom of God and it causes people to suffer. You may remember that we talked about at the giving of the law, at the, at the base of Mount Sinai, the proverbial family meeting that God had. He, he, God wanted us to understand that we need to live the way we were created to live because when we don't, it hurts us and it hurts those around us. And that's what we're getting to here. When someone bears the name of Jesus, yet they live with a spirit of judgment, it hurts those around you. That's what happens when we take the name of the Lord in vain. It hurts those around us. But there's another way I see people taking the name of the Lord in vain, and this is the one that I'm most guilty of. Some of you probably don't know this story, but I have a daughter named Reagan. She's in fifth grade, and people are always asking me, which uh, family member are you going to throw under the bus this week from up there? It's Reagan's week. 
She'll be entering fifth grade this, this fall. And uh, for the last four years or so, she's been having these strange pains, like can't walk, a pain in her ankle. Um, and that'll go away, and then she'll have a pain in her jaw. Uh, the pain in her jaw is so bad she can't even open her mouth to eat. And we can't figure it out, and it goes away in a few days. So um, we started by taking her to a dentist several, several years ago, and the dentist said, oh, she's just got a tooth that's coming in. The jaw and the leg, they're not connected. She's got this tooth that's trying to come in. If that persists, we'll have to go to an oral surgeon. So the pain persisted, and we went to an oral surgeon. The oral surgeon took some x-rays and said, I don't see anything here. I think she has TMJ. Some of you may have had TMJ. It's a stress-related issue that you get from clenching your jaw, and you get this pain, and your jaw actually will lock up. So we went to a TMJ specialist, and he said, she is too young to have TMJ. I mean, it, it seems to be TMJ, and if it is TMJ, she has extreme anxiety. He wanted her to quit sports, quit music lessons, quit taking spelling tests, which she wasn't too upset about. But the, uh, that doctor said, you are obviously pushing your daughter too hard. She needs to cut back on things, and I want her to see a psychiatrist. So we went to see a psychiatrist, hoping to identify what was all this stress that was happening in her life. But the, uh, the psychiatrist found nothing abnormal. So we decided to keep pushing on this because we just felt like we're getting passed around from doctor to doctor and the, came, the pain keeps coming back and they put her in a boot and then the, you know, her jaw's hurting. So we get an appointment with a rheumatologist at Children's Hospital. He ordered a CAT scan and some blood work. We didn't think much about it. Reagan would say it was a lot of blood work because she hates needles. Um, but we just you know, we got the test and we kept going about our, our business. And I remember like it was yesterday. I was getting uh, my car tags at uh, the Alexandria Courthouse office, and my phone rang, and it was Angie. And I could tell she was crying, and I asked her what was wrong, and she said she needed me to come home right now. As a matter of fact, I didn't associate this with the test at all. I thought our dog had been uh, hit by a car. And I said, what is it? And she said, just come home. So I drive home, and uh, Angie tells me that the doctor had given us a bad report from the test. The scan had found a mass inside Reagan's jaw, and they need to do an MRI the next, uh, the next week. And I remember always wondering how parents who, who get that kind of news about their child deal with it. And I told you already that I'm a worrier, so it took me just a few hours to think of all of the possible outcomes of this mass. And when I say all of the possible outcomes, I could see every possible outcome. In my mind, I went there with every one of them. And I have this weird way of telling myself, God's got this. Let's not worry until you know for sure what it is. But I still deep down get to that point where I have seen every possible outcome and, and lived through it in my mind. I worry and it takes me away from being who I should be. So we did the MRI the next uh, week, and it confirmed that there were indeed three masses in my daughter's jaw. Uh, we were told that there were several things this could be. Most of them were pretty bad things. And, uh, and the process was going to be we're going to start eliminating things and trying to figure out what this is. And the doctors were pretty forthcoming about what the next steps would be like. Many of you have been through similar things with your children. Some of you have been through much worse. 
And like every time you're dealing with medical issues, you know what it's like to wait. The waiting is the worst part. I remember last summer uh, lasting about 18 months. So the next step that we had was a PET scan. And I, my dad had cancer a few years ago, so I knew what a PET scan was. A PET scan is looking for cancer. That morning, I was okay. I was in the mindset that we're going to find out finally what we are up against. It wasn't until recently that I found out that Angie wasn't so okay that morning. Because she really, through that point and then even after that, she had been a rock. She, uh, her faith through this was incredible, much, much greater than mine. I, tell, I told all my friends that. How, they'd ask how I was doing. I would say, I, I'm not doing that great. But Angie, she, man, she has really got a lot of faith. But it wasn't just this blind faith that said, well, she's going to be okay. Let's not talk about it. It was a faith that said she may not be okay, but I know God's going to get us through this. So the morning of the PET scan, Angie told me later about the shape that she was in. I didn't even recognize that. Um, but we leave. We're, get, we're getting ready to pull out on 27, and Troy Mower is, uh, is, passing, is passing our house right at the same time. Is that coincidence? Some people say yes. A lot of things could have happened that would have messed that up. But Troy's right there as we're pulling out of the driveway. He hops out, prays with us in the driveway uh, there before we leave. And that reminded us that we bear Jesus' name. And Angie tells you that's the point where she really got it. That's the point where she knew God's in control of this. It may not turn out the way we hope. It may be the worst possible news, but I have faith that that God is in control and we will be able to figure out and deal with whatever comes. The next morning was the morning I had trouble. So uh, that morning I got up and um, we... uh, we are getting ready to go uh, get the results of the PET scan. And uh, I remember being in my bathroom, literally throwing up. Uh, Angie comes in and says, it's really not helpful, you, helpful for you to be this worked up. So I, I thought that was the funniest thing. I still remember that. <laughs> and I remember going to the hospital and holding Reagan's hand. And I remember her not being sick. I remember her dancing and skipping on the way uh, into the hospital. And I remember coming up to that door that said cancer center and putting my hand on it. And Reagan for the first time looking up and realizing that that word cancer was connected with all these tests that she was having. And I could feel the life come out of her. And she didn't cry or throw a fit. I could just feel her sink because it was the first time she had connected that. And I said that last summer lasted about 18 months. Well, the hour or so we waited for the cancer doctors that morning uh, were about 12 of those months. But the, the cancer doctor finally came in and he told us that she did not have lymphoma, which was one of the things they were looking for. She did not have leukemia, which was another thing they were looking for. They weren't sure what it was, but they were eliminating the bad things first and moving on. So after more tests, we found out that Reagan has a rare auto-inflammatory disease that's treated with naproxen. She takes a leaf. Um, and it will self-correct when she's a teenager. So we were obviously relieved. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wow, it's pretty easy to stand up front there and tell this story when everything turned out okay. It's pretty easy to say, well, you should have faith. But we learned a lot about ourselves. We learned a lot about God through what happened last summer. And I definitely give God all the credit for 
Reagan not being sick or in pain now, but I don't believe that she's well today because I had more faith than the next family that came into the cancer center that got bad news or the countless family that have been in the cancer center since then. I don't believe I have more faith than them. Or some of you here who've gotten bad news in the past. I don't believe I have more faith than you. I tell you that to illustrate that some of you may be more like me than you are like Angie, that you worry and you think all the way out to the end and it consumes you and you can't get past it. When you're faced with challenges, when they're small things or devastating things or life-altering things, do you remember that you bear the name of Jesus? Do you remember that there is power in his name? Last summer, I experienced this paradox. It was being in the darkest place I had ever been. I remember uh, Amy, our office manager, called Angie and said, something is wrong with Jared, because I wasn't talking about it. I was in the darkest place I had ever been, but I was learning to trust God in a way that I never thought was possible. So you have challenges to face. Maybe you've lost a child and you can't get past that grief. I can't imagine. Maybe your marriage fell apart and you still live with the hurt of all those broken promises and dreams that you had. Maybe you lost your job and you feel like you don't have a lot of value anymore. Maybe uh, you or a loved one has a physical issue and it is not getting any better. The doctors have told you this is as good as it gets. Maybe you're like me and you think the only reason someone would compliment you is because they don't know the real you. Maybe you don't believe that anyone could really love you or that uh, you would even have a place that you would belong. You bear the name of Jesus. You are a child of the King. Claim that power that comes with his name. It's taking his name in vain if you don't stake a claim in that power right now. And I don't tell you that to say, shame on you for not claiming his name. I tell you that because you were, cre you were not created to live a life of shame, of defeat, or fear. It's not about if you just had more faith. If you just had more faith, your kid would be healed. If you just had more faith, your marriage would, would be fixed. It's not about that. It's about you staking a claim and bearing the name of Jesus. Because the battle you're up against is God's battle to fight. It's too big for you to fight. I remember being helpless last summer. Anybody feel helpless today? Take the name of Jesus. This battle is bigger than you. It came out of nowhere. You can't win it. Give it to God. Bear the name of Jesus. And it's not in vain. It's not worthless. It's not powerless. And God will bring you through it. That doesn't mean that everything's going to turn out the way you want it to turn out. But God will bring you through it. There are three types of people in the room today. Some of you have never taken the name of Jesus. You have never made the commitment to follow him. And you have an opportunity to do that in just a few minutes. We're going to sing some songs together. We're going to take worship. I'm going to be right down front. If you want to take the name of Jesus today, I'm going to ask you to come down front and to talk to me. We'll set up a time to talk. We're not going to make a spectacle of it down here in front. We're just going to take time to talk today and set up a time to get together and to talk about what that means, to take the name of Jesus, to claim the power that comes with that. Some of you have never done it, and I encourage you to do that today. And there are others of you here, though, that aren't conforming 
to the image of Jesus. You've been hypocritical and judgmental, and it is hurting the kingdom. You know what? You're taking the name of the Lord in vain, and Jesus has already paid the price for that sin. But you can't stay in that sin. You've got to give that over to God. But I think the majority of you fall in the third category. The third category is the one I relate to. You're living in fear, in doubt, uncertainty, grief, insecurity. I've been praying for you this week. I've been, I've been praying for you because it just doesn't have to be that way. And I find myself there all the time too. And I have to remind myself it doesn't have to be that way. I bear the name of Jesus. Scriptures tell me that all the time. Psalm 68 says, Praise be to the Lord, to God our Savior, who daily bears our burdens. Isaiah 53 says, Surely He took up our, and bore our pain and our suffering. Matthew chapter 5 says, Blessed are those that mourn, for they will be comforted. So I'm asking you, over the next few minutes, if that's where you are, to just stop the worry. Even if it's just for the rest of the morning. Stop the worry. Put Jesus at the center and worship Him over these next few minutes. Because you bear the name of Jesus. God has invited you to the foot of His throne this morning. And there's no place that has more security than a child of the King sitting at the throne of God. And before we worship, we're going to take a time to take communion. And that's just going to help us remember what it is that Jesus did. And that those of us who bear His name for us, He also bore the cross 2,000 years ago to save us from our sins, those sins we've talked about, those other gods we put in the center. Jesus died to take that sin away. The Ten Commandments point right to Him. So today I'm going to ask you over these next few minutes just to take time to focus on the power in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Father, just thanking you again for today, thanking you for your word. For this opportunity right now, Father, these very first few hours of the week, we give to you. We want you right at the center. Father, we're probably going to let false gods sneak in this week. We're probably going to take your name in vain this week. But Father, right now we focus on you. Father, we pray that you help us stay away from that sin because we know that sin causes us to suffer and others to suffer. But Father, right now, we're not going to think about our failures. We're not going to think about our jobs. We're not going to think about our insecurities. We're going to think just about you. Father, we thank you for the way that you love us and we remember what it is you did when you sent Jesus to die for us. It's in his name we pray. Amen.